Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, friends, and welcome to the first installment of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's latest presentation, Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. In this series, we intend to bring you, our devoted listeners, along with us on some in-depth investigations as we excavate a wide array of artifacts that pertain to rock and roll in all kinds of exciting ways. Remaining true to our initial narrative arc, we intend to explore rock's impact on music, culture, and technology. Deeper digs will often take us on the road, behind the scenes, and occasionally down the rabbit hole. So far, in previous rock and roll archaeology episodes, we've touched on some of the technology that helped shape rock and roll as we know it. Innovations like the 45 RPM record, the jukebox, and studio effects helped usher in new possibilities for the rock phenomenon. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the most iconic of all rock and roll tech innovations, the electric guitar. Our dig gig took us to Guitar Showcase in San Jose, California, right in the heart of what is now Silicon Valley. 51 years ago, when the shop first opened its doors, rock and roll was approaching its heyday, and this is home to some pretty amazing relics from those times past. Our guide here today is Gypsy Jack Van Breen, a veteran of the local rock circuit, spanning many years in various connections and an employee at Guitar Showcase since 1971. We're counting on him to shed some light on this all-important rock topic. So let's hear a little bit about Jack. I've been playing stringed instruments since I was seven, and I'm not going to give you a year because I'm younger than I, <laughs> I look. But I've been through over 300 electric guitars in my buying career, and I've played with a lot of stages. I've, I've played with some of the Doobie Brothers and some guys from Chicago and open for some other folks. So I, I have a little bit of experience in this whole genre thing. So Jack is clearly an expert. We were lucky enough to talk to him into selecting a few of the more historically important guitars and providing us with a little bit of background on each. As immensely popular as the electric guitar would eventually become, early versions weren't an instant success. The invention traveled a long and winding road towards becoming the rock band lead staple that it has been for decades. And it began in what now seems like an unlikely place. Hello, my 
1931, Hawaiian music was enjoying a surge in popularity on the U.S. mainland, and the linchpin in every band of the genre was the guitarist. This was largely unproblematic for radio broadcasts or intimate live settings, but as larger and larger audiences were drawn to performances across the country, the problem of amplification began to emerge. Innovators in the music industry were working on ways to electronically amplify the relatively quiet sound made by the guitars these Hawaiian musicians were strumming. A Los Angeles resident and former vaudeville performer, George Bocamp, was taken with the new music that was gaining popularity nationwide. He had been playing guitar and inventing and modifying primitive amplifier technology for years before he enlisted the help of his friend, a machinist named Adolf Rickenbacker. Together, in the midst of the Great Depression, they produced an instrument they would lovingly come to call the frying pan. There had never been anything quite like it. Here's Jack. These guys were playing, and the instruments that came from Hawaii were real sweet, but they weren't really loud. Worked yeah, well in radio, mm -hmm. but in a concert hall, not so much. And this slack key player got together with a machinist in L.A., and they were playing with this newfangled technology of magnetic pickups, and they designed an instrument that would play like a steel Hawaiian slack key guitar, but could be louder. From these inauspicious beginnings the electric guitar was born. The first models were all referred to as frying pans because that's what they looked like and because they weren't exceptionally more advanced than a frying pan with strings attached, yeah, so to speak. If you want to have a look to know exactly what I'm talking about, head over to our website and see for yourself. But the new, albeit primitive, models captured the interest and imagination of some important music men who recognized their potential. And these men plotted separate, but equal courses with rock and roll destiny. Let me take you back. Southern California, circa 1950. Palm trees swaying in the breeze, vast ribbons of freeways crisscrossing the desert and chaparral being envisioned and built. Inextricably linking Malibu, Hollywood, San Diego, and the Inland Empire. The death and destruction wrought by the Second World War had come to an end. The American boys who left to fight had returned as men, and they were starting families. Yours truly was a late-coming member of this baby boom. Suburbs grew rapidly all over the country, and Southern California was a perfect sample of this new mode of civic development. Orchards and farms were being replaced with row houses and low-rises for the rapidly emerging middle-class family. In the midst of this evolving social landscape, American musical innovation was flourishing right along with the housing developments, aerospace technology, and the entertainment industry. Two men in Los Angeles, one a soft-spoken amateur sax player and native son of SoCal, and the other a national country music celebrity transplant from the Midwest, were separately tinkering away, hoping to perfect and commercialize the instrument that would come to be the ultimate symbol of rock and roll. Their efforts would eventually produce the most recognized and respected guitars in existence and have an impact on rock that is impossible 
to overstate. Tell us where we are right at this moment. We are right now in the heart of Guitar Showcase, what we call affectionately our Vintage Vault. The Vintage Vault is a 40 by 25 foot windowless display room, crowded wall to wall with all kinds of vintage guitars, basses, and amps. Inside, we are told, is over $3 million in inventory. The collection culminates in expensive craft instruments like an exact replica of Eric Clapton's famous Stratocaster Blackie, priced at a modest $50,000, and a guitar owned by Elvis Presley's original guitarist, Scotty Moore. That one is for sale too, but serious buyers might want to consider a second mortgage. Before the amplification, they made these big guitars so that in the big bands... Now, you can imagine that tone trying to keep up with a 15-piece horn section. Yeah. Not so much. Right. They took their pickup and they added it in. Oh, yeah. So they could keep up. And this is what Les Paul was playing in the 40s. It's 1948. Home from the war, country blues musician Les Paul was on the back end of a road trip with his stage partner and soon-to-be wife, Mary Ford, headed from Les's native Wisconsin to his home in L.A. They never made it. Somewhere in Oklahoma on Route 66, Mary lost control of the Buick and drove it off an overpass, destroying the car and shattering Les's right arm. certain he would never play the guitar again, they advocated amputation of the mangled limb altogether. Les refused, deciding instead to be flown back to Southern California, where he found a doctor willing to set his arm at an angle that would cripple his range of motion for life, but still allow him to play. Such was Les's dogged commitment to his music and especially to his beloved instrument. So in the 40s, he started thinking about, well, what if we put a big chunk of wood together? Mm-hmm. And that's where his creation, the log, came up. And he tried for years to get the Gibson company. And he played Gibsons. Yeah. He liked Gibsons. He wanted them to build him a solid-body guitar. And they wouldn't that, do it. And they wouldn't do it. No, no. They wouldn't do it. For years before his accident, Les had been tinkering with a solid-body electric guitar design culminating in what was essentially a 4x4 piece of timber with a magnetic pickup and strings attached, affectionately dubbed the log. He pitched it to the Gibson Guitar Corporation, which dismissed the idea on several occasions, once referring to it as a broomstick with pickups. Later on, Les actually split an Epiphone archtop guitar in half and attached its wings to the log, just to make it look more like a traditional guitar. Gibson still wasn't impressed, and they still weren't buying. Despite these setbacks, Les continued to tweak his invention, inviting friends from all over to come play music and hang out with him at his home studio in Los Angeles. One of those friends was Leo Fender. So let's talk about what what makes up an electric guitar. 
Okay, so starting with, let's, what makes a guitar? You have strings. Yep, six of them. And you have a neck to attach them where the frets are. By moving up and down the frets, you change the pitch, the frequency, mm -hmm. and you can play multiple strings at the same time for chords. Mm -hmm. This is the big difference between a guitar and like a saxophone or a trumpet. They can only play it's one note at a time. Right. So if you want a chord out of trumpets, you got to pay three guys. So you have that, and then you need to make these strings, which vibrate, louder. Mm -hmm. So you have a bridge that they move up and down, and it attaches to a body, and right. the body vibrates. An uh, acoustical okay. instrument, the body vibrates up, out, and in, and the motion in moves the air in the box, which then gets moved out through the sound holes. So that is a form of amplification. It is a form of amplification. In fact, we had Paul Reed Smith here a couple of days ago, and he was talking about his acoustic instruments. The back and sides is the cabinet. The top is the speaker. Oh, so when you yeah. think in terms it of the speaker... It moves very similar to a very speaker. Very similar. Mm -hmm. The back supports the speaker. Mm -hmm. So that's what the acoustic instrument does. But you can only move so much air with an acoustic instrument. So they add the pickup. And the technology on the pickup is the pickup is a magnet. Mm -hmm. And what you do to make electricity is you move a wire through a magnet. Right. Well, if you do it at a certain frequency, the magnet moves pulses of electricity. Your ACDC that comes through the wall is a 60 cycle, somewhere around a little bit lower than that. Yeah. So you get not much. This, uh, is, this yeah. is 88. Is, okay. Right. So, so your 60 cycle buzz you know, is just cycles moving here. So the magnet moves. Those vibrations translate into audio frequencies that the amplifier makes louder. Ah, got it. Sometime around 1949, Leo Fender asked Les Paul to go into business with him commercially producing solid-body electric guitars. Les considered Leo's proposal and accepted his Fender prototype as a gift, but ultimately he declined the venture. He was determined to convince Gibson to produce his improved-upon version of the log. Fender was likewise determined to put his own design on the market and formed a company in 1950 to begin doing just that. <laughs> What do you got in your hands there? Okay, one of my favorite guitars. I think uh, a lot of people's favorite guitars. A Telecaster. Yeah. Uh, as I've been known to say to people, good guitar players play Gibsons. Great guitar players play Stratocasters. The gods play <laughs> Telecasters. Roy Buchanan, uh, Danny Gatton, uh, those two just spring to mind as true monsters of the guitar, and they play Tellies. Yeah. And part of the reason of that is the Telly's a very pure guitar. Every note you hit sings with clarity and definition. If you hit a wrong note, it screams with agony. <laughs>
was one of the most legendary Fender Telecaster players, and easily one of, if not the most iconic, Bruce Springsteen. The album cover of 1975's Born to Run features the boss in a leather jacket with a knowing grin, leaning on his sax player, the big man, and gently gripping the neck of his beloved Telecaster. In Bruce, Fender has a loyal customer for life. Leo didn't play the guitar himself, and he never learned. But that didn't stop him from committing his innovative spirit to designing a sleek body and a technologically advanced electric guitar. He first released his Fender Telecaster in 1950 with two pickups for increased sustainability that would have mass appeal for what would soon become legions of Fender customers. As the popularity of Fender guitars increased, Gibson quickly realized their short-sightedness. In 1952, Gibson released a Les Paul solid-body electric model in order to tap into the rapidly expanding market that Fender was serving. was Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin with 1969's Whole Lot of Love. That same year, Jimmy purchased a Gibson Les Paul he nicknamed Number One from Joe Walsh. Walsh, as we know, would join the Eagles about six years later and go on to hold his own revered place in rock and roll history. The, the point is, beginning in 1952, Fender and Gibson would emerge as healthy competitors, and it's a competition that continues today. Rock musicians of every era have their chosen acts, and though they are certainly prone to alternate from time to time, everyone has an iconic favorite. But it wasn't just guitarists who were showing an interest in the electric phenomenon. Here's Gypsy Jack once again. Okay, so as we all know, if you want to make people move and dance, you have to have some bottom end. That's right. And in the 30s and the 40s, that bottom end came from the bass violin. Uh, true. Big, uh, you know, if you talk to rockabilly folks who still play them today, they're called the, the doghouse. Right. And they're big, they're bulky, they have a big long reach. It was difficult to play fast on them. Uh, it was difficult to get volume out of them and, you know, difficult to play any kind of interesting lines on them because, you know, they're just huge. Well, they're made for an acoustic uh, they're orchestra. They're made, made for, to be in an orchestra. So... Ironically, you know, Leo wasn't the first. There was a company called Ampeg. And in the 30s, they created a bass violin with no body. And but it was a stand-up. It was based on the stand-up. Right. But it was just the neck yeah. and enough of a body to support it. And it had a peg that plugged into an amp. Oh. Hence, amp peg. peg. Right. Didn't take off. Interesting idea. Didn't take off. So people just you know kept on using kept the doghouse. Dog well, Leo, with it, what he learned with the Telecaster and what he learned with the Stratocaster, realized that there was a market for an electric bass guitar, right. and it's called a bass guitar because it's like a guitar, but it plays in the bass register. Fender allowed his genius to spill over into the bass market, until his design for a solid-body electric model the first to gain really marketable popularity, bassists had been forced to lug around traditional clunky upright orchestra pieces. 
But Leo's innovation allowed enthusiastic bassists to do much more than simply lighten their load. The instrument offered unprecedented musical exactitude, hence its moniker of the precision bass, or P-bass for short. It was designed with learnable, exact frets, where traditional violin basses have none. And perhaps most importantly, the rhythm section could now keep up with the electronically amplified volume of bandmates who had already gone electric. The bass guitar took off and never landed, as evidenced by the likes of Flea in the Red Hot Chili Peppers almost 40 years after the first Fender P-Bass came off the assembly line. Facing competition from Les Paul and Gibson, Fender returned to his Telecaster design and began to make adjustments, based on feedback, no pun intended, from his increasingly famous customers. The body of the Telecaster, though curvier than other solid-body designs, was reported to have a tendency to dig into the musician wearing it during the course of extended play. Enter the Fender Stratocaster, the instant and future king of electric guitars. The sleek curves of the Strat's body may have suggested voluptuous femininity, but they were born of practicality, the humble Leo responding to his customer base. And just as he had added a second pickup to the Telecaster, the ever-tinkering inventor eventually introduced models of the Stratocaster with three pickups, yielding unprecedented versatility. It was the instrument of choice for early rockers. The Stratocaster made infamous by a couple of iconic singers, Richie Valens, one, which we just did, La Bama, and uh, a guy who influenced many, many people, Buddy we, Holly. We talked about in episode three, Buddy Holly. <coughs> Both of them, actually. Yeah. Both of them, the Stratocaster kind of married to their music. Right. Because Stratica- his Telecaster was a square cut. The body had a, a 90 degree angle at the top on the face and 90 degree on the back, and that edge would cut into the the, the beer bellies of some of those country pickers, and they didn't like it. I see. So he uh, took the strat. The next evolution was he rounded out the back of the body, a contoured body, which was more comfortable when held against the torso. Right. It's one thing. The other thing is, well, if two pickups are good, three pickups must be, be better. better. <laughs> so we have the bridge pickup. <laughs> The middle pickup, and the neck pickup. Got it. One of the reasons the Stratocaster became so popular in all sorts of genres is you can actually play some jazz. And you can play proper adjustment you can go 
So do some Joe Walsh. Uh, it covers all types of genres. It's why it's become my most favorite guitar. And I, you know, see me with Tin Man. That's my number one act. I think you see more t uh, Stratocasters being played over the years than just about any guitar. I mean, I think the Les Paul is pretty close, but I kind of think the Stratocaster, the Stratocaster is a little more popular. Not only is it more popular, it spawned more imitators. imitators. Right. <laughs> was the indomitable Jimi Hendrix performing his quintessential rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner at the Woodstock Music Festival in 1969. Jimi played his Stratocaster with impossible intensity. He played it with unbridled abandon. He played it with his teeth. He might be the best example of a rock musician coming to define his instrument and vice versa. Hendrix has remained widely recognized and extremely popular, despite being taken from his fans, friends, and family at age 27 by drug overdose. He is and will be remembered by rock historians, the general public, and everyone in between for a long time to come. And the lasting image of him is undoubtedly with Fender Strad in hand. It was more than musical versatility that made the electric guitar the instrument for the 20th century. And it was more than popularity that made rock and roll the medium for the electric guitar. No longer were music and technology necessarily the lofty pursuits and luxuries of a privileged class. The electric guitar is a democratic instrument for a democratic sound, in that it can be picked up and learned by a committed student with ease relative to other instruments. Plus, it's loud, it's fast. It fused art and technology, music and innovation, at a time when those forces came together to embody socio-political trends in a way that was truly unprecedented. Never before rock and roll had any genre of mainstream music simultaneously enjoyed so much popularity along with so much accessibility. Today, there are literally hundreds of companies producing quality electric guitars, and we don't want to shortchange them. To list every important guitar here is an impossible task. Suffice to say, there are many. But two of the pillars we've covered still stand tallest. The Gibson Les Paul and the Fender Stratocaster. And when they come together, like in Eric Clapton's 1970 hit Layla, guest starring Dwayne Allman and his Les Paul, alongside Clapton and his Strat, the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts. What do you do? 
we'd like to extend our sincere appreciation to Gypsy Jack Van Breen and Guitar Showcase for hosting us during our exploration of the beginning and evolution of rock's most recognizable instrument. Furthermore, we'd like to encourage any of you diggers out there who are interested in checking out this killer vintage guitar collection to stop by the shop. Located at 3090 South Bascom Avenue in San Jose, California. It's a lot of fun to browse, and who knows, you might just find a perfect axe of your own that you can't live without. Join us next time on Deeper Digs in Rock for a special conversation I had with author Jay Stevens. He's the author of Storming Heaven, LSD, and the American Dream, a book we relied on heavily for some of our research for Episode 9 of our main podcast. Jay and I talked about LSD's impact on rock and roll, discussed altered consciousness, and wrapped a little bit of amateur philosophy. We recommend listening to the interview as a companion piece to Episode 9, but it's not required for a good grade. Regardless, we hope you enjoy it no matter what. We'll see you next time, and as always... Keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.